Well, I want to start off with a couple questions for you. We're going to do a little, a little bit of a test. I know it's not school at Sunday, but we're going to do a couple multiple choice tests. These are just mental tests. You don't have to blurt out your answer. In fact, I would encourage you not to because you might embarrass yourself uh, or the person next to you might not like you as much as they do right now. So here's the first question just to get you thinking a little bit. And it relates to your employment. So if, if you have a job or you want a job, this question is for you. So I'm willing to go to work and here's your four options. A, to make my boss wealthier. B, to make myself wealthier. C, because I have nothing else to do with my time. Or D, to contribute to the well-being of others, culture, and the advancement of civilization. So just think about that a little bit. What gets you out of bed on Monday mornings or whenever your first shift starts? Why do you go to work? What motivates you? What makes you willing to stay employed? Here's another question, and it relates to marriage. So if you're married or you want to be married, this is for you. The question is, so I, I got married or I want to be married, A, so that I can be a blessing to another human being, B, so that I can together put the gospel on display for the world to see, C, to meet my needs, or D, because the world needs more kids that look like me. <laughs> so how would you respond to those questions? In your heart of hearts, don't, don't shout it out loud, but I, the reason why I'm asking questions like this as I want to get you doing a little like introspection, I want to get you thinking about what motivates you to do what you do. Why do you go to work? Why are you willing to go to work? Why are you married? Why do you want to be married? Like what is it inside of you that motivates you to pursue those things? And then we'll ask an even more significant question. Why are you a Christian? What motivates you to want to serve the Lord? Why is it that you're willing to be here today? What, what are you hoping to gain from being in church today? As you live your life Monday to Friday, the hustle and bustle of life, why do you follow Jesus Christ? What difference does he make in your life? I want to get us thinking about our motives our reasons, our rationale for why we do what we do. And the reason for this is because the lesson that we're going to learn today can be a little jarring. We've been studying the book of Philippians as a Christian community for a few weeks now. And we're going to continue that study today in the second chapter. And we're going to explore verses 12 through 18 and the title of a series is Beloved Stand Firm. So we're, we're reminding ourselves that we're loved by God and God has called us to persevere. But oftentimes when we serve Christ, I think that in our selfishness, we do it for what we can get out of it. Would you agree with me on that? Sometimes we're, we're all into Jesus because, well, Jesus saved me. Jesus blesses me. Jesus helps me. Jesus has given me some eternal fire insurance. Why do you serve the Lord? Well, we're going to learn this morning that our willingness to serve Christ is not dependent upon earthly blessings. 
but it's motivated by joyful submission to his purposes for our lives. This, this truth, which we have up on the screen to help you to remember it, will sustain your faith much longer than some sort of a selfish form of Christianity ever will. This kind of selfless submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that fundamentally the reason why I serve the Lord is so that I can surrender myself to his purposes and accomplish his purposes through my life, folks. This is a freeing way to live. This is the selfless kind of Christianity that the word of God calls us to. We'll see that in our biblical text. And I think this is especially relevant because right now we are under great trial, suffering, and tribulation. And you know what happens when the heat is on the church, those that don't like the heat scatter. And many do and many will because a lot of Christians think, well, I serve Jesus because of what Jesus can do for me. And if Jesus stops doing for me what I want him to do for me, I'm out of here. So in the midst of trial and tribulation, one of the things that helps us to stand firm is to readjust our mission, our purposes, away from self-seeking to God-seeking purposes. Instead of being me-oriented, we need to learn to be God-oriented. Our stand against cultural demise, cultural issues, the cultural wars, isn't dependent upon winning in the here and now. You know that, right? We don't stand for righteousness because we assume the courts are going to rule in our favor. I'll be honest with you. I'm almost, I'm about 90% sure right now I'll lose in court. I'm about 90% sure the world's going to get worse. Probably about 95% sure. I think it's going to get worse. We don't take a stand because we assume that in this life we're going to win. We don't take a stand because we assume in this life we're going to get a pat on the back and we're going to be vindicated by the courts and the health unit and everyone's going to be like, yeah, well, why, why didn't we do what Harvest Church did during that time of trial? That's not why we serve the Lord. In the, in the long run, we win. We know that. In the eternal kingdom, we win. But our stand against the, the demise of culture, against sin, against evil, even in our own lives, it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon truth, morals, virtues, and the commands of the Lord. Well, let's look at the scriptures because I, I, I don't want to just share with you my views on it. I think what I've shared with you so far is based upon what God has written. So let's look at Philippians chapter two. And by the way, if you're just joining us, this is a prison epistle, meaning that it's one of four epistles, four letters that Paul wrote from a prison cell but he's very joyful in his approach because he has an eternal perspective. And we're going to divide this into two sections. Let's study verses 12 and 13 first. And what we're going to learn here is that if we're going to stand firm, we must be willing to work for the good pleasure of God. We must be willing to work for the good pleasure of God, not for the pleasure of self. We're not hedonists, you know, self-seeking people who just live for pleasure. We're, we're, we live for the purpose and honor of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in the scriptures, therefore, my beloved, so there, good reminder, you're loved by God. As you have always obeyed, this was a church that more or less had it together. 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Now I want you to read the last four words with me. For his good pleasure. Not for our good pleasure, but for God's good pleasure. Complete this sentence. The mission of God is the? Exactly. The mission of God is the glory of God. How often do you hear that preached in the modern church? We're too interested in somehow trying to convince people they should come and join us. And in order to do that, we often water things down and we, we, contribute a consu- we, we, we create a consumer mindset in many churches. Church becomes a spectator sport. It's like I go to the movies on Friday night. That's fun. I play baseball on Saturday morning. That's fun. And I go to church on Sunday morning. That's fun. And we think of it kind of as all the same thing. We're just a, another place to gather and have a good time. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a good time in church. We're not trying to make this a drag for you. We're not trying to put on, up unnecessary barriers or obstacles for you to be here. But we need to remind ourselves that God is working in us. Why? Why is he working in us? Both to will and to work for his, here's his purpose, for his own good pleasure. This is why we call ourselves a vertical church. Because we want to keep pointing people up and reminding people, God didn't save you primarily to get you out of hell. God didn't give you his word primarily so you could have a better marriage or better kids. He saved you for his own good pleasure to demonstrate his grace and his mercy to people who do not otherwise deserve it so that he might be made famous in this world. This passage is super helpful in keeping us focused. Now, lest you might think that, well, God doesn't like you or love you or is you know, just sort of using you. No, look, look how it starts. It says, therefore, my beloved, this is a reminder of God's heart for us. We are loved by God. That's super encouraging. For God so loved the world. We remind people of this all the time. At the end of every service, we say, you are loved because we want you to be re- reminded of that. And listen very carefully to this, folks. God's love for you is not conditional upon your performance. You know that? God's love for you is not conditional upon your performance. False, fake world religions will teach you that. That in order to be made right with the gods, you need to contribute some niceness or some charitable deeds. And then maybe God or the gods will take an interest in you. God's love isn't conditional upon your performance. And so it also follows that your love for God shouldn't be conditional upon his performance. Well, I'm going to love God because he fixed my marriage today. I'm going to love God because I took a stand and he, he allowed me to keep my job. Or I'm going to follow God because health, wealth, and prosperity. God's love for you is not conditional upon your performance and your love for God should not be conditional upon his performance. Your love for God should be directed to him because he's your creator and he's also your savior and he's accomplished something that no one else could accomplish for you and that is 
granting you the gift of eternal life. So good reminder, we're loved by God. Second truth, as you have always obeyed, these are kind words of affirmation from Paul to the Philippian church. He's basically saying, hey guys, you're doing a pretty good job. And let me just declare to you as one of your leaders, the same words of encouragement. You guys are doing a great job. The faithfulness of Christians in this church is so encouraging to me, to those around you, and to people all across our province. I get messages from people as far away as Kansas thanking this church for their faithfulness to the things of God. People that don't even know us, but they've just heard about us. So together, I want to say to you, you're doing a good job. We know we're not perfect, but let's continue to be faithful. Let's continue to be that lighthouse on the hill that the world needs. Paul goes on to tell them that he wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, but he doesn't want that to be contingent upon him being present, sort of breathing down their neck. So he says, whether I'm, whether I'm with you or not, you don't need to be accountable to anybody in order to understand that this is the right thing to do. Whether I'm breathing down your neck or I'm 100 miles away, keep working out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Keep pursuing the things of God. Now, let's just dissect this a little bit because I remember talking to a friend years ago and I, I don't remember the specific question I asked him, but I said something to the effect of, do you believe that you have to contribute good works to your salvation. And he, he quoted this. He says, well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And automatically I heard in his response an error. And we talked about it because he was reading the words that we're reading, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what he was wrongly Seeing in the text, he was reading it like this, work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say work for, it says work out. Now we need to understand that sometimes we're a little sloppy in Christian churches, especially in the evangelical wing of biblical Protestantism. Sometimes we're a little sloppy when we preach about salvation. And you might think, well, that's, I thought our group sort of got the salvation doctrine down. I think we're, we're, we're pretty sloppy actually because most people, when they use the word salvation are referring to their justification. The, the, the gracious work of God whereby he declares an unrighteous sinner to be otherwise righteous in his sight based upon the finished work of Christ. Or they think of their salvation as past tense. Well, you know, in 1979, on October the 6th at 8 p.m., I became a Christian. So that's the point of my salvation. So we think of it as past tense, the point of our conversion or our justification. But biblically, the word salvation has, is, is, is much broader. The word salvation refers to our conversion. It refers to our ongoing sanctification, meaning our growth in Christ-likeness. And it can also refer to our future redemption and glorification in Christ's eternal kingdom. So the word salvation is not just specific to the, the point in time that we were converted and became genuine, bona fide 
followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is helpful because when the, when the author here says, work out your salvation, he's not saying work for your justification. He's not saying, you know, work for your own redemption. But he's calling us to walk with Christ on this ongoing journey. We call it in theology, sanctification. It means to be made holy. We are continuing to be saved. I was saved many years ago. I am being saved and I will be saved. That's orthodox, biblical theology. So again, it's not a work for, this is not a works-oriented gospel, but it is an imperative that is calling each of us to make our salvation practical, to live in light of our conversion, to increasingly conform the way we think to the patterns that Jesus demonstrates, to increasingly act with our hands and our feet to feel, to speak in a way that is Christ-like and honorable. So it's, it's not appropriate for us to just think about salvation in terms of, well, I was saved many, many years ago and I don't have to do anything anymore. No, no. Christ is calling us to continue to follow him, to continue to draw near to God, to continue to humble ourselves, to continue to adopt the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passages like James chapter 4 are super helpful in this regard. In James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, the writer says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Folks, there's many places in Scripture that read in a like-minded way. Fruit of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you should have love and joy and peace and patience and so forth increasingly evident in your life. There's all kinds of commands and precepts that we are to obey and follow after we've come to, to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's commit ourselves to continuing to work out our salvation, to growing in godliness. And by the way, if you are not interested in these things, and in fact, you are living in habitual, ongoing, unconfessed sin, chances are you weren't converted in the first place. So if you're a true Christian, you're never going to be perfect this side of heaven, but you're going to be convicted by sin. You're not going to feel comfortable with it. You're going to be ashamed by sin. You're going to be aware of sin in your life if you're spending time in God's word. So when you come to church, if you're already a Christian, you shouldn't go away feeling condemned like, oh, my salvation was just taken away, but you should feel convicted. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. So let's continue to work out our salvation. The doctrine of sanctification, by the way, is really important. So with justification, we say that justification, which is God's gracious work of declaring us, it's like a forensic word, declaring us to be innocent in his sight. So we, he takes the innocence of Christ and he applies it to our guilt. Jesus sheds his blood, gives his life for us. He applies, applies it to us. We are then justified, meaning we are made right. This is monergistic, mono one. It comes from one source, one energy. This is completely of God. You do not justify yourself. You don't contribute in any way, shape, or form to your justification. It's monergistic. 
But sanctification is synergistic or cooperative, you could say, in that now that you're saved, you're resourced. So you have the word of God. You got it with you? You have the spirit of God who indwells you. You have the people of God around you. So you are now resourced, well-resourced to live an obedient Christian life. And sanctification then is cooperative. So for example, what does God do in this cooperative relationship in our sanctification? Well, he, he teaches us. He enables us to believe, to confess. He reminds us of truth when we forget it. He rebukes us when we sin. He disciplines us. So God does all of that in our lives. And do we just sort of sit back and say, let go, let God? No. We don't blame God if we sin. We don't say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner, but that's just, that must just be God's thing. He must be okay with that. No. We avail ourselves of the spiritual disciplines, so we pray. We confess our sin. We read the scriptures. We fellowship with other believers. We open ourselves up to rebuke and church discipline. We choose to hear the word. We choose to obey the word. We choose to repent of sins. So God's working, we're working. This is a cooperative, participative relationship that we are called to participate in. So don't buy the whole let go and let God lie. Uh, lie. There's a lot of people, well, they look, they look at what's going on in the world. Oh, well, it's all God's in control. Whatever, whatever God chooses, we're just gonna kind of wait for it to all happen. And they just sort of disengage. Or they have sin in their own lives. They're like, yeah, well, whatever. God's gracious, he justified me. I know I'm saved, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, I'm gonna get to heaven anyway. This is false teaching. God has called us to work out our salvation and he's given us all the resources, but we're also responsible to step forward, to step up and to pursue a life that brings honor and glory to God. What helps us to do that is to get vertical, to have a, to, to have a vertical focus. So when we're pursuing relationships, yes, there's, I get it. There's a human, there's a benefit in that in, in every relationship we have. And when we come to church and we fellowship with one another, yeah, there's a benefit. You know, I'm encouraged by you. I'm encouraged by your words, your presence, your giftedness. When I married my wife, there's many blessings to marriage. There's blessings to being a father, etc. But fundamentally, when it comes to our relationship with God, while we are blessed by it, we serve him for vertical purposes. Look at what the text says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what we call a doxological purpose. Have you heard the word doxology? Comes from two Greek words, glory words, glory words. When we give glory to God, that's doxology. When we praise him, that's doxology. And here we praise God. We say, God, you are my enabler. You are my satisfaction. We remind ourselves the mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is not to make my life better. It's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me, because we all think it's about me. Even when we're very little, we become aware of this. Like little children are incredibly selfish from day one. 
You, you could put them together with the two most gracious, humble parents on planet earth and they're still selfish. That toy's mine, I want this. Throwing temper tantrums. We're born in sin, but we're being taught that the mission of God is the glory of God. So why do you follow Christ? Is it for your benefit or is it for others? We have a little house dog, her name's Maisie. She's mildly irritating. I, Simon and I agreed, she never ever crosses our minds unless she's in our presence. But she's there. And one thing about Maisie is she is incredibly self-serving. So we often jokingly say, oh, there's Maisie. She's so loyal. She's so loving. Oh, come to me, Maisie. And this is like a, a joke that we often tell in our house because we know that's not her mindset at all. It's like she could care less about us unless we have food. <laughs> so every morning I get up, I have my breakfast. Sometimes I'm sitting in the living room or sitting at the counter and she's right there. Why? Because she loves me? <laughs> no. no. No, because I have something that she wants. That's just her nature. But unfortunately, many of us are like that with God. We're like, we're right at God's feet. Why? Because we're waiting for him to do something for us. And God's like, hey, um, what have you done for me lately? You're honoring me with your life? Are you worshiping me in pain and in sorrow and suffering? Would you be willing to take a stand for me if you lost? A lot of us are like Maisie the dog when it comes to our relationship with God, but God is calling us to a vertical focus, a vertical mindset. Now, there's also some practical things that we're called to in this passage. We want to be willing to conduct ourselves honorably. So when we talk about sanctification, it's important for us to understand what that looks like. So read on, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. By the way, let me just pause there and ask this question. I wonder how many of us actually believe that's true. Because it seems to me that people are more trusting than not of the world around us. They, they buy into the lie of spiritual neutrality. They actually think <laughs> that school teachers are morally neutral that physicians are morally neutral, that the prime minister and premier are morally neutral, that police officers are morally neutral. You actually believe that. But the Bible says we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But our job, what is our job? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now lights do what? They light up darkness. The world is very dark. We're the light. And then we have this parenthesis in the text, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in, in, in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that's curious language, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's two imperatives in this cluster of verses that we need to obey. 
The first is we need to set aside grumbling and disputing in order to be lights. Now, I think what he's talking about there is grumbling and disputing among God's people. Have you noticed that the world is rather divisive right now? And you hearken back to all those media campaigns just a few years ago, anti-bullying campaigns, tolerance campaigns, anti-discrimination campaigns, equality campaigns, my body, my choice campaigns. And you're like, hmm. I thought they were benevolently motivated. I never really did. But clearly they're not. Because now it's all about division. It's those people, it's those people, it's the fringe. And here's what the world wants to do even in the church. It wants to divide the vaxxed from the unvaxxed, right? You notice that? We're not gonna take the bait. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna stand united in Christ because our unity, John 17, is in Christ. Not in your medical choices, not in your color of skin. Doesn't the Bible say something about not showing partiality in the Christian church? Good to debate these issues. I would encourage it. But there's a difference between debate and schismatic division. There's a difference between those two things. We should openly debate issues with one another. I think that's healthy. We grow in all of that, but we do so out of love. But it's so tempting to fall into grumbling and disputing. So we're, we're disputing. That's a divisive word. And we're, we're grumbling behind one another's backs. Well, oh, they didn't handle that the way I wanted or on and on and on. And Paul is calling the Christian church through the spirit of God to be united, to do all things, to serve without grumbling or disputing. And that's part of our, our winsome witness in the world. So the purpose is so that we might be blameless and innocent as a testimony to outsiders. We, we're called to shine. And by the way, shine isn't in the future tense. It's in the present tense. So that, that's now. That's not for Monday. That's now. We're to shine as lights now. And so when we're thinking about this, debate is good, division is bad. If you remember nothing else under this section, debate is good, division is bad. Attitude matters. Some folks love to debate, but they love to debate because they love to divide. Other people love to debate, and they love to debate because they're seriously seeking truth. And you need to be discerning to try to figure out, hmm, okay, I have this opportunity to push back or to voice my opinion. Am I just feeding an ornery character? This, there's ornery people in churches too, we know that. You know, we're all growing and sometimes orner, being ornery or grouchy or grumbly is, is a problem for some, but we're to cast off those things and remind ourselves the enemy is all around us. This is a wicked, twisted and perverse generation. The last thing we need is to divide Christian communities. And in order for us to do that, again, I'll emphasize it, we need to cast off this lie that the world is spiritually neutral. It's not. Folks, the devil hates your guts. I hope you know that by now. And Jesus said, didn't he say in Matthew chapter 12, maybe about halfway through that passage, something like, basically, if you're not for me, you're against me. 
So if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, you are actually his enemy. It's not, well, there's people that love Jesus and then there's Hitler and Pol Pot over here and everyone else is kind of in the middle. No, there's, there's a fence and it's a very tall fence. There are those that are Christ's enemies and there are the beloved, those that are part of his church. And we need to think that way and not buy into the lie of spiritual neutrality. Really important stuff for us to consider. So in contrast to the perversion of the world, we are called to be light. And then we're called to hold fast to the word of life. So no grumbling, no disputing, so that we might be lights. And then hold fast to the word of life. So this is kind of in verse 16 there and following. In verse 16, I would suggest, especially the first part, is kind of like a parenthesis. So we're called to be lights. And it's like, well, how do I do that? Well, holding fast to the word of life. That's how we do it. We hold fast to the word of life. The word of life is scripture. It's God's revelation of himself. When we see the word word in the New Testament, sometimes it's the word logos, which refers to the scriptures, unless it's referring to Christ. And then there's rhema, which means spoken word, like in, in, in um, Ephesians chapter six, when we have the word of God as our armor, that's not referring to the Bible as many preachers wrongly teach. That's referring to your, the way you speak. When you speak the word of God, when you communicate the word of God, this galvanizes you and protects you from spiritual attack. But at the same time, the word of God also galvanizes you and protects you from spiritual attack. And this is what they have in mind, the, word of, uh, the, the writer has in mind here, that holding fast to the word of life is what helps to protect you from attack. So very simple question, how much time did you spend reading God's word this week and meditating on it? Well, I had 21 meals, <laughs> a lot of snacks in between, so I took care of my body. But did you feed your soul? Have you ever even read the word of God from cover to cover? We ask this of Christians a lot, and many of them will say no. I said, folks, like if, you, if you're a Christian for one year and you die and stand before God, and you're like, I never read your whole word once, but I, you know, I read a lot of it. Okay, that's pretty good. But if you've been a Christian for many years <laughs> and you've never read the word of God from cover to cover even once, come on. The word of God is life to us and it's light to us. And it's not so much about quantity. I mean, it's, it's better to read in a quality way, to, to read a small portion, meditate upon it and chew it over. But the whole of the word of God is God's law word to us. And it's all benefit and it corrects us and rebukes us and encourages us. And we do this with Christ's return in mind. So in the beginning of the middle of verse 16, it says, so that in the day of Christ, what's the day of Christ? Well, his second coming, you know, he's coming back and he's going to come back. We know that he's coming back. So we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that hope in mind that he's going to come back and we're going to be held accountable for the way that we've lived our lives. And then finally, we have this basically reminder uh, to never give up. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Don't give up. Don't make all of your training in vain. One of the saddest things I've witnessed in my life is 
godly Christian people that have lived well for Christ for 10, for 20, maybe even for 30 years or more, and then they just give up. They just walk away. It's so sad. Don't give up. That's like an Olympic athlete. Training for years and years and years and winning all sorts of lesser competitions. And then you're at the World Olympics and you step out on the track and you're like, give up. Or you start running and you're like, I'm not going to win. I give up. Folks, resolve in your heart. I will never give up. With God's help and by God's grace, I will never give up. I want to remain true to Christ till death. I know he's coming back. Never, ever give up. How many have run the race and then run away? Don't be one of those people. Run and then keep running. And when it gets hard, you might be running a little slower, but keep running. Keep serving. Never give up. Be bullheaded for Christ. This is God's high calling, and it's, it's such a blessing. The more years behind you, the more you can declare God's faithfulness to those around you. So never give up, never quit, and never back down for Christ, knowing that he will one day reward you. All of this is said in the context of a call to love others. Paul's desire is to be joyful when he hears of their sanctification by, by hearing good reports that they had not given up. He says that in the text. He doesn't want to waste his time on them. He, he, he thinks of himself as a living sacrifice. Remember the scriptures call us to be a living sacrifice. I think it's in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. To be a living sacrifice for Christ. Same idea here. That's what he means when he says, I was poured out like a drink offering. So in, you, could, you could research Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 to 10 for sort of some background on this. But in ancient times, wine was commonly poured both in various Hebrew and Greek ceremonies as part of a sacrificial process. So the, the pouring of wine or the pouring out of wine in, in the ancient reader's mind was connected to sacrifice. It was a symbol of sacrifice. We still have that echoed in the Lord's Supper where we drink fruit of the vine, wine or juice, as a reminder of Christ's sacrifice. This is an extremely ancient action going back thousands and thousands of years. When Paul talks about his own life being poured out like a drink offering, he's basically reminding his readers and reminding himself that his life is a sacrifice to God. 2, Corinthians 4, 2 Timothy 4.6 teaches that as well. So he's willing to sacrifice himself for Christ, and we should all be willing to sacrifice ourselves for Christ. But it's a whole lot more joyful when you actually see fruit, isn't it? You know, when you preach hard, you pray hard, you disciple hard, you love hard, and you see fruit, it's like, wow, oh, this brings me joy. Wow, it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. Paul is calling the Philippian church to listen to God's word. I would call you to do the same every week. Listen to my words as I preach God's word to you. Don't let them just be words. Act on them. Obey them. Listen to them. Put them into practice. Bear fruit 
It brings me great joy. And it will bring you great joy and benefit as well. Don't ever let your leaders that serve you and preach to you and disciple you and pray for you be left with no fruit to bear because of their labors. Let's be an obedient people. And when future generations come up, may they bear much fruit for God's glory. Just as past generations, I would remind us, we're here, yes, because of the grace of God and the, and the, the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're also here because past generations of faithful Christians stayed true to the Christian faith and passed it on to their children, who passed it on to their children, who passed it on to their children. We didn't even know their names for the most part. But we stand in a long lineage of faithful followers who've preached the word of God to past generations. And we have benefited from that. So let's be a benefit to one another as well. Folks, do you have a vertical mindset? Why do you do what you do? Why are you living for Christ? Is it for his honor and glory? I hope it is. Are you living honorably? Have you, you, have you cast off grumbling and dissent and division? And are you pouring out your life to the benefit and blessings of others? And have you committed yourself to the long race? This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. It's a marathon. And it ends when Jesus says it ends. We don't even know how long it's going to be. But let's stay true to the Lord and let's live honorable lives for his honor and for his glory. 